It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today's special guest, Alan Fogel, reminds us that wellness also requires honoring the body's need to rest by shifting from a state of doing to allowing, from activation to receptivity, from regulation to restoration. Alan Fogel, Ph.D., is a professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Utah and has been an active contributor to research on emotional development in human relationships from infancy through adulthood. His books include Developing Through Relationships, Infancy, Infant Family and Society, Sixth Edition, and Body Sense. Um, Body Sense, the Science and Practice of Embodied Self-Awareness. And today, we're going to be talking about his book, Restorative Embodiment and Resilience, a Guide to Disrupt Habits, Create Inner Peace, Deepen Relationships, and Feel Greater Presence. Um, he is also a licensed massage therapist, a Rosen Method bodywork practitioner and senior teacher and founding editor of the Rosen Method International Journal. Journal. He has a part-time practice in embodied self-awareness consulting and Rosen, Rosen Method bodywork. Good morning, Alan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Randy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, um, as I said uh, before we came on air, I really like this topic. It really makes me think, which is kind of interesting because that's sort of what you talk about. Um, you have been a researcher of emotional development and human relationships from infancy through adulthood. Can you just give us and I, I know this is a broad category, but can you just tell us how important healthy relationships are from infancy through adulthood or in infancy and childhood to produce healthy adulthood? Well, of course, you know, as babies, we can't, um, we can't exist without other people. <clears throat> um, you know, if you compare humans to other animal species, like most other animal species outside of the primates, can pretty much exist as newborns on their own. But um, primates, meaning apes and monkeys and humans, um, all need a mother at first, and sometimes, and, and in the human case especially, a father. So. Um, we're pretty helpless when we're born. We need holding, we need changing, we need feeding, we need loving, we need people talking to us. All of these things we know um, from a long history of research on human development that are essential to human growth. 
And we also know on the other side of things that if we don't have that, if we don't have what's called a secure attachment relationship with at least one of our parents, that that's going to disrupt our developmental process. So in the ideal case, when we cry, we're picked up and we're soothed and we're held. Or as we get a little older, if we get angry, our anger is met with understanding and and compassion. And um, we're able to settle down and find a way to express ourselves emotionally that's less harmful. But in um, cases where parenting is not as sensitive, we never learn those abilities. We never feel like we were safe enough to feel, to cry, to um, openly express our angry feelings without, you know, acting them out or hurting someone. So, um, yeah, again, especially in humans, relationships are central to healthy development, and they're also central to disordered development. Yes, thank you for that. So as you probably heard in the intro, I'm a narcissistic abuse expert and coach. And so uh, many of the clients that come to me have experienced narcissistic abuse from a parent in which they, like you said, were not allowed to express their emotions, their feelings. They were, uh, they learned to stuff them inside and other, many other things happened as a result of this lack of attachment and this, um, the parent um, thinking everything is about them rather than focusing on the needs of the child. And so these people grow up, and I'm one of them actually, grow up um, not being able to access their emotions or if they can't access them, they are fearful of them. And so that is really the first step to trying to heal that past. So when we can't access our emotions, what are some of the things we might do? I mean, when we can't um, express our emotions, that's what I wanted to say. What do children do when they can't express emotions? Well, there's a whole range of things. In my new book on restorative embodiment and and resilience, I talk about what you're talking about as a dysregulated state of embodied self-awareness. That means that we have something stirring up inside of us, but it feels out of control or it feels too much or it feels like we can't get close to it. And um, that, that has many harmful effects. One, one, you know, kind of obvious one, is that when we're in a more mature relationship or even at school age when we're we're working with peers or when when we're with teachers, um, our our emotions can bubble up and surprise us and we can do harmful things to other people. Um, Or we don't able to find joy and pleasure in ordinary things. And, of course, as we get older and we start to form more um, adult kinds of bonds, friendships and intimate relationships. Um, We can become um, withdrawn. That's one side of it. 
withdrawn, detached, dissociated from ourselves and from our partners. Or on the other side of it, we can be, we can act out. We can, um, we, we're not able to feel our own pain, so we externalize it, meaning that we, we take it out on other people. We yell at other people. We belittle other people. So these are all examples of what I call this regulated embodied self-awareness, which is kind of detachment from our own embodied feelings, from our own embodied sensations, or a distortion of our own embodied sensations so that we we try to get rid of them, we try to block them, we try to turn them off or turn them outside of ourselves. And narcissism is a really good example of one such state because it's 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 seemingly all about the self but what happens and you know this better than i do um it's about a kind of externalization process where we we start using and blaming other people for um things that we can't feel or handle um for ourselves and and historically you know we know that narcissists even though they seem like um, they're the most important person in the world, they have among the lowest self-esteem of anybody we could imagine. So they make up for that by belittling other people. That's so true. So it really is a response. Narcissist um, NPD is one of the responses that children have to this um, disruptive developmental process. So what is um, what is embodied self-awareness? What does that mean? Well, that's a really good question. That's kind of central to the work I've been doing for the past um, 10 or 15 years. Um, it's a term that I, I developed after a lot of reading and studying and clinical practice. And it really has to do with our sense of our own selves living in our own human body. And um, there's, two, there's two ways we can become aware of ourselves as a person living in the body. We can think about ourselves or we can feel ourselves. And for most people, most of the time, what we're doing is thinking about ourselves. We, we might think that we are sad, for example, and we tell ourselves or try to understand in words inside of our head or even talking to somebody else um, why we're sad, what made us sad. Well, I think it was because my friend said something I didn't like or I'm sad because I just recently lost my favorite pet or my best friend or whatever it is. So we make up stories and narratives in thought and in um, talking to other people. So in a sense, we know we're sad, but the knowing is an intellectual kind of knowing. So that's one way we can be aware of ourselves. But in those cases, we're not actually feeling our sadness. So the other part of embodied self-awareness that's different from thinking about ourselves is feeling ourselves. So it's really different. It's fundamentally and radically different to just let sadness come over you, 
Um, so an example would be if we're talking about grief, um, like losing somebody you cared about. Um, many people who are grieving report that just in the middle of an ordinary day, they're just overcome with tears. They just, there's no explanation for it. They don't even try to explain it. They just feel themselves washed over with sadness and grief, and the tears just flow. And there's something about allowing ourselves to feel in that way. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> My morning congestion. Um, <laughs> I have it too. <laughs> about, okay. Something about allowing ourselves to feel, giving ourselves permission to just feel without interpretation, without judgment. That's fundamentally cleansing, what I call restore, <coughs> restorative embodied self-awareness. So when we're thinking about our feelings, when we're saying, oh, I must be sad because, or we're um, telling a story about the lost loved one, we're in a, in a kind of a middle ground state that I call modulated embodied self-awareness, which is basically thinking ourselves through things and understanding things. And most most programs, most therapies, most educational programs are really focused on helping us to move from dysregulated embodied self-awareness to a more modulated state. And mod being modulated is pretty good, actually, for most people. If you, We've been dysregulated for a long time. But shifting into a restorative state where we're not trying, we're not figuring things out, we're not understanding, we're not um, working on getting better. Um, that is radically different. It's fundamentally transformative. It lifts us. It moves us into a wholly different sense of ourselves and who we are in the world. So that's kind of a long answer to yeah, a short a question. No, it's a really good answer. So I find that with a lot of my clients that, um, and as I said, many of them don't know what to do with emotion. And they're in their um, surviving, learning to thrive or healing state, they run through a range of emotions that they don't understand. And the, and the emotions can switch up at any minute. So what I find people doing is like you say, judging and being attached to, the, to, to what this is about and trying to figure them out. And then that causes a sense of panic, which enhances the emotions, makes things worse, and then adds panic on top of it. So how, if, if this is happening, what would someone do to out of their head and into their body is I know that you have several exercises in your book, but how do we, how do people stop feeling panicky over emotions they don't understand? Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I also see the same thing in my own clients that I work with. So what you're describing, if I can translate it into my language for a minute, is... Mm -hmm people that are shifting between 
dysregulated states like panic and feeling out of control and not knowing what to do with an emotion into modulated states where they can explain it, they can kind of understand it, they can do exercises. Like um, if you're feeling panicky, a really good exercise is slow breathing. So, but all of those things take a kind of empath, uh, uh, I'm sorry, they take a kind of effort. They involve the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which I'm sure you know about and you've talked about with your other guests. So anything that's effortful falls into this range, this range of modulated embodied self-awareness. And a lot of times what we're working with in the examples that you gave is helping people out of those dysregulated, in, in the case you gave, panic, states and into more modulated states. Okay, yes, I can feel my feet on the floor. Yeah, I got it. I can hear what you're saying. I get that you're with me. Um, I'm going to slow down now. I'm going to breathe a little more slowly. I'm going to look around me and ground myself. These are all wonderful modulated strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done some research on this in my own um, clinical work and um, using Rosen Method bodywork clients and practitioners as subjects. And what I find is that um, during clinical sessions, people move from dysregulated to modulated states and then back from modulated to dysregulated. I've never saw a case in hundreds of hours of transcribed sessions um, where someone could move from a dysregulated state to a restorative state. So in other words, the modulated state where I'm able to calm myself down or or I'm able to use the help of my therapist or my friend, um, in those those states, um, that's like... um, it's like a, a middle ground. It's, it's like a safe place where we can be, where we know we can escape from the worst of the panic or the fear or the anger or whatever it is that's coming up for us. Now moving, so in order to get to restorative states, we have to be pretty solidly grounded in the ability to stay modulated. And moving from modulated to restorative it's really a very different process than moving from dysregulated to modulated. Okay. Thank you for that. And and that is those are the the modulated states are things that we really can do. So what we're really doing is we're sort of getting in touch with where we are, how you know how our body feels, breathing, relaxing. So we're we're fo- changing our focus from the um, <clears throat> the panic state to being in the present, right? Being in the present moment, right? Yes. Is that kind well, of, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not entirely in the present moment because thinking, anytime we're thinking, we're removed from the present moment. <clears throat> Thought is abstract. <clears throat> it's about something. It's not... It's not the thing. It's about the thing. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. So in modulated states, what what's really helpful is, um, yes, learning all these techniques to calm ourselves, to explain things to ourselves. But, you know, there's another really important part of modulated states, especially in a therapeutic process, which is that the client begins to feel a sense of trust or safety with the, with the practitioner so that um, the client can say, the client be, can become more aware of slipping into dysregulation. And the mm-hmm. client can communicate that with the, with the practitioner. And, and then there's a partnership that begins to develop so that they work together. I'm getting, as a client, I could say, I'm getting that I'm losing it, you know, and um, I need your help. And then they work, you know, the, the client and practitioner can work together. Well, let's try this. Let's try that. Um, tell me what you're feeling. Tell me, tell me where you're feeling in, in your body. Um, <clears throat> um, let's try this exercise or that exercise. So those are all great, uh, again, great modulating strategies. But uh, what I want to emphasize, and this comes back to your first question, is that the the um, bringing explicitly bringing the relationship into the person's thought process is a huge and important step because now the person doesn't feel completely alone. That person who may have been abandoned or unloved or um, not responded to as a child now begins to feel, oh, there's, I can actually talk to somebody about this. I can actually ask for help. Does that, Sorry, there's, see, there's my congestion. Does that extend past the um, clinical process? So in other words, if they're, when they're with the practitioner that they are feeling safe with, um, if that relationship develops over a few sessions, does that then carry on that sense of um, safety? Yes, definitely. Um, so when they go home and they're with their family or with their friends, um, you know, those that <clears throat> sense of emerging security with other people that I can open up to another person, that I can I can share what I'm feeling, that does generalize <clears throat> and it becomes part of the skills, the modulating skills that people learn so that um, when they start to when they when they start to notice that they're feeling lost or getting dysregulated, they can reach out for help. They know who to talk to. They know who to call. And it's okay. a really big, really big part of um, growth in, in therapy. I can definitely see that. You talk about um, four types of felt experiences, interoception, proprioception, autonomic nervous system, and emotion. Mm-hmm. What is interoception? Interoception is, well, all of those things are part of what I call felt experience. So um, they're basically feelings that come from our own body. 
So, and we can contrast that with what's called exteroception, which is our five senses, our sight, sound, taste, all of those things. So those are ways that we perceive the external world. So what we're talking about here in the list that you just read is the way we receive, we perceive our internal world, the internal state of our own bodies. <clears throat> so interoception um, is works through a dedicated pathway of brain cells and nerve cells that extend throughout the whole body, where um, at the ends of those nerves that go down the spinal cord and then from the spinal cord out into the different parts of the body, and they can go into the skin and the muscles and the gut and the throat, um, <clears throat> there are receptors, and those receptors are picking up information. So, um, so when we feel, for example, an itch, that's an interoception. Or if we feel warm or cold, those are interoceptions. Um, it's a way of um, uh, it's a way our, our body has of detecting changes in um, our inner our inner environment, <clears throat> or it's one way that our body can do that. Um, now, proprioception is a little bit different. That runs along some different nervous pathways and some different kinds of receptors. Typically, these are receptors in the tendons and at the ends of muscles and in the inner ear. And this is where we get our sense of movement and coordination, like walking or running or doing some sports or music. Um, those are all proprioceptive skills, and we have to be able to feel the different parts of our body working together or not working together, which we have to practice and work on to get them to work together better, um, or balance that comes from the inner ear. And surprisingly, the receptors in the in inner ear also tell us something about our body shape and size, so our body image. So... Um, we can have an accurate perception of our body image and we can feel good about our body image, or we can have a distorted perception of our body image, like people who feel like they're overweight when they're normal weight, or it's or the opposite. Like body um, dysmorphic and, disorder, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, <clears throat> boundaries, interpersonal boundaries come from that from proprioceptive sense. So do we feel comfortable um, being close to other people or do we put up barriers to physical closeness? So that's all in the domain of proprioception. And it runs through different neural pathways in the body and through different um, regions of the brain than interoception. Um, and then autonomic feelings this is different from the autonomic nervous system. I mean, they're related, but it's slightly different. But um, when people talk about the autonomic nervous system, they talk about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branches, the sympathetic arousal, activation, um, defend, defending ourselves, and the parasympathetic being the state of coming to rest and slowing down. Um, but I'm talking about 
Um, here I'm talking about the feelings that are connected to the autonomic nervous system because the autonomic nervous system connects to <clears throat> all of the internal organs of our body. So our heart, our, our um, lungs and diaphragm, our blood vessels, um, uh, it's basically autonomic feelings are basically the feelings of being alive. So feeling our heartbeat, feeling ourselves breathing, um, those are all different, different kinds of feelings from, um, you know, like feeling itchy, interoception, or feeling balanced, proprioception. It's the felt sense that I'm living in a human body and, and I can feel the throbbing and pulsing of that body. Mm. And then uh, um, finally, emotional feelings are, to me, um, among the most interesting because we can feel emotional about any of those other felt senses. So uh, if we're if we're warm, for example, that's an interoception. That we might not we might have an emotional experience of that warmth as wonderful, you know, soft, lovely. If it's if it's a cold day and we're sitting in front of a fire or wrapped in a blanket. Um, on the other hand, we might feel disgust about feeling warm if it's a hot day and we're sweating and we're sticky. So emotions are kind of um, interpretations, embodied interpretations, felt interpretations, not cognitive, not thought interpretations about all of our other felt experiences. Hmm. That's so interesting. It really is. I mean, because, you know, we think of a feeling is a feeling, but this is just very, very, um, you've really broken this down and it makes so much sense. Uh, you say that emotions are fundamentally socially, social experiences. How is that so? Well, I, I think that part, you know, um, the part personal experiences but they become social experiences starting infancy, which we were talking about earlier. So, um, you know, a baby who's feeling a distended stomach or feeling hunger, those are interoceptions, um, um, will start to cry. That's an emotion about those, those other um, felt experiences. But quickly, the infant hopefully is picked up and soothed and fed. So um, in that very moment, the emotion becomes interpersonal. It becomes relational. Um, so if you've ever had the experience of, um, you know, seeing a crying baby or even a crying child, uh, and you, you go to comfort that child, you pick them up, you hold them, and what you can notice if you let yourself is that the sobs start to become less insistent. There start to be more breathing between the sobs. There's a slowing down. There's a calming down. There's a coming to a state of rest. And if you're holding that child or that infant, you start to feel their whole body soften and relax and um, melt mold into your your body 
Um, and, and that's a restorative state. So here's a child who's, who's gone from um, dysregulated emotion of distress to modulation where, you know, there are these, I don't know if you can hear me, but, you know, kind yeah, of gasping right. and soft, mm-hmm. modulated to a complete letting go, just utter letting go and surrendering into the arms of the person that they're, that, that, that's holding them. And, of course, the same thing happens between adults who have secure relationships. So if you're really upset about something and you go to your best friend or your intimate partner and you start talking and then all of a sudden you're crying and all they do is open their arms and they give you a hug and they hold you, the same thing will happen. You start to feel yourself. You start to feel the warmth. You start to feel, oh, maybe it's going to be okay. So you're, you're shifting into a modulated state. And then at some moment, you just don't care anymore. That's when the shift into restorative states comes. And you just let go into the arms of the other person. And everything is lost and everything is forgotten except being totally in the present moment with the warmth, with the tears, with the, with the touch. That's respiration. Well, so what happens in um, adult re- relationship with narcissists is that when the person is provoked and then they get upset and they begin to cry, their, the um, reaction from their partner is the opposite of what you're describing. Why are you crying? Look at you. You're crazy. And all that does is create more emotion, right? Exactly. Um, actually, what it does is it shuts down emotion. Um, <clears throat> it shuts down our ability to feel ourselves because we start, we start thinking maybe we take them seriously and we're trying to figure out what's wrong with us. Um, but most often it would send us into some kind of state of dysregulation where we think, and, and the difference between uh, let me back up and say that the difference between thinking in modulated states and thinking in dysregulated states is radically different. So in a modulated state, we might be kind of going along, like if a, if a person is asking us, well, what, what happened? What, what upset you so much? You know, And there's a kind of kindness there and an openness and understanding. Then you can, you know, you can begin to think, well, it must have been what my boss said. It must have been this. It must have been that. So you're not feeling, you're thinking. But if it's more like the way you described it, which is kind of pushing somebody, being impatient with somebody, then what's going to happen is you're going to shift into thinking that's dysregulated. And dysregulated thoughts are are different from modulated thoughts. Dysregulated thoughts are, what's wrong with me? Why can't I hold it together? There's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. Um, So we begin to have these thoughts of self-doubt. We begin to have what are called ruminations, where we over and over and again in in our heads, we, we say we're not good enough. We're no good. We'll never be good enough. We'll never please that person. Um, So those are examples of dysregulated thinking that would come about in the scenario that you described. 
That is really, really, um, that that's so important for all of us to know, you know, because yes, and, and it explains, it really helps to explain why someone who treats us this way can really cause us to feel like something's wrong with us rather than us recognizing that we're being mistreated. So that explains a lot for us. Um, yeah. I thought, I and thought I this was really, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. No, I was just going to say that um, one of the great breakthroughs that we can get from therapies um, and from having other people in our lives who are not treating us that way <clears throat> is to come to the understanding that we are being mistreated, that it's not us that's wrong, it's the other person who's wrong. And we begin to wake up our awareness about what's right and what's wrong. Um, our own self and our own self-worth begins to wake up and come online in our awareness. And that, um, <clears throat> I'm sure you know, is, a, is just a radical change as people shift out of dysfunctional, um, being in dysfunctional and abusive relationships into more um, compassionate ones, more modulated ones. Right. But what, um, you know, I don't want to focus so much on narcissism, but what, you know, what the narcissist does is isolate you from your, all those calming um, forces, all those people who would give that to you so that that you can become more and more broken down. So, yes, yes, it's very interesting. Um, I read in your book that West Africans test higher on measures of interoceptive awareness compared to Europeans and North Americans, most likely because they have a cultural worldview that emphasizes the holistic connection between the head and heart. So I thought that was really interesting. So culture really can affect how we process our emotions and feelings based on what you're saying here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, just think about how, um, what schooling is like in uh, so-called first world nations. You know, it's all about thinking. It's all about solving problems. It's all about explaining, understanding, um, rationalizing, judging. And, There's very little happen, that happens in the course of an ordinary school day that, at least in, in an educational setting, um, has anything to do with honoring or recognizing or banding upon our felt experience. Um, I think that may be more likely to happen in preschools where the focus is less on intellectual learning and more on, you know, um, Feeling like feeling what a worm feels like. Right, experiential. It's like to pet a cat, or um, and and talking about feelings. And um, there's a wonderful program I think your listeners might be interested in knowing about that started in Canada. It's called Self Reg, Self Dash Reg, and you can look it up online. But it's basically about the. idea behind the program is to transform um, school uh, schooling 
for all ages, all through high school, into bringing the body more into the educational program. So instead of making kids sit still in a desk, which is not very good for most children, um, giving them bouncy balls to sit on or yoga mats to lie on and letting them wiggle. And it actually turns out that kids learn better that way. And not just ADHD kids, but all kids learn better when they can move and express themselves. Um, and the, that self-reg program also teaches teachers and parents about listening to children's emotions, listening to when children get dysregulated. And instead of judging them or punishing them for not being able to sit still or talking in class or um, whatever it is they're doing, it's more about, well, what's happening in the child's life that is creating this, these, these actions in the child? Let's try to figure that out. Let's try to find a way to calm the child's nervous system so that they can be more in touch with their feelings and, more, and therefore come back to, their, to the work of learning. So it's a very different model of ed education. And, and again, um, you know, it's, it's, very, it's radically different from most of what we consider education in the Western world. So in, and in other cultures, and, and typically they're more um, inactive cultures, let's put it that way. People learn by doing. They um, apprentice. They um, work beside others. They're... They talk to each other in different ways. Their, their um, interpersonal relationships are more interdependent. Um, those are the cultures where interoception is typically higher because it's just more something that's more allowed and more part of the dialogue of everyday life. <laughs> well, that is that makes so much more sense than this old way of trying to teach children and trying to make <clears throat> every one of them be the same way, making them all behave the same way, try to learn the same way. Because, and I agree with you. Nobody, no two people learn the exact same way. <clears throat> I know I, you know, some, some kids just um, absorb it no matter how, where they are, how they are or whatever, you know, situation. But most kids, I would say, probably don't. Right. So I wish, I really wish this was, I hope this takes over very soon. Because it's, we're producing a society of children with this, this, um, so let me just back up. Let me say that I think it's really important that, children's emotions be recognized and that they learn to accept them and feel them and be supported for them because that reduces so many of the issues that can happen as they get older. If we have that kind of support in the family and in the school system, then we raise a healthy generation of children. Yeah, because basically what that means is that we're, if we can feel that our emotions are real, that they're okay, that, that um, there's somebody there who will listen to us and we can not only talk about them, but actually feel them. You know, like a, the example I gave earlier about just giving in to your crying and just letting go with it. 
you're kind of dropping off a cliff of control, so to speak, and into the arms of love or compassion, where you're just allowed to be and there's nothing else to do. Um, and you can, do, you can do the same thing, by the way, it isn't just um, sadness, but <clears throat> you can give in to your anger in the same way, where you can just let yourself feel the burning. You just let yourself feel the irritation. There's no thoughts. It just consumes you, and what you feel. And there's no, and there's no, there's no retaliation behind it. There's nothing but just feeling the burning and the stinging that happens when you really let yourself feel angry. And what happens miraculously in in, in restorative states is that if we can allow ourselves to do that, it diffuses the toxicity of the anger. <coughs> so. It's like our body somehow gets it. Like, yeah, I was really, I was really angry, and I didn't even know how angry I was. And it might not even be a thought like that. It might just be the felt experience that brings a sigh of relief, that brings a settling down, that brings an inner knowing. That is part of what I call restorative states. And the reason, it's just coming back to a theme that I mentioned earlier, the transition from a modulated state where I'm trying to control my anger or I'm trying to understand my anger to um, just letting myself feel it. And it, it always helps, of course, if there's somebody else with us, just like with the crying example. Um, it's, it's like letting go of all of the things we learn to do to control the anger. We have to just surrender to it. And that is, turns out to be exceptionally difficult for most people, surrendering, like surrendering into the arms of a loved one when we're upset about something. Um, you know, usually we just try to grin and bear it and push our way through things. This is a radically different approach that, that, that is fundamentally healing. It's healing because what happens when we, all of those intense emotions, when we just let ourselves feel them, they will reach a peak and then they will subside. It may not seem that way at the time. It may not seem that way when we start to drop into them and get more and more intense, but there reaches a moment where they do start to subside. They feel like the example I gave of the baby or the child who's, starts to gasp and breathe and then settle. Our body just does that. It starts to relax and let go. And <clears throat> when we can allow ourselves to go into those deeper states of rest and relaxation and relief, it actually it actually heals disease. I mean, it, it turns on our parasympathetic nervous system, which activates our immune system. It, it slows our heart rate. It um, allows us to breathe naturally. It allows our good hormones to flow. So um, I guess I want to say restore, uh, restorative states are fundamentally healing, but they're also fundamentally challenging because most often we're, we're afraid to go there because they see, it, it seems like they're going to be too much or they're going to be too intense. 
Yes. You're absolutely right. Thank you for explaining that. You explained that really, really well. <clears throat> um, it helps, really helps us to understand what that's about. And, and um, I, I, what I pulled out of there is, um, I pulled a lot out of what you just said, but um, what I, you said that it helps if someone is there while, while we are trying to experience our feelings. So sometimes if we're, you know, if we're trying to do this alone, it's harder than if somebody is there um, while, you know, I, like, because it is, it is terrifying to feel feelings you've never felt before. So you're saying that it's easier if someone that's compassionate is just there with you. It's easier to allow yes. yourself to feel those feelings. Yes. Um, okay. You know, I'm thinking of a particular um, therapy session I have in Rosen Method um, where I was the client and I was recalling some childhood traumas where I wasn't listened to, where I was punished, where, um, you know, some of the things that um, happened to a lot of young children. And I remember you know, going deeper and deeper into that feeling of, well, uh, worthlessness and um, self-judgment. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, somehow I got that I was so angry at what had happened to me. I was so angry at the person who did this. And with the help of a therapist, I could just feel the anger. And and at one point I just said, you know, through tears, I said, I am just so angry. I I had no idea. And it was such a healing moment. <clears throat> and I remember, you know, looking into the therapist's eyes when I said that and how comforting that was to be able to honor that experience and accept it for what it was. And it, 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 so, in other words whatever resentment I might have had was no longer there. Really? Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. I I have transformed it. I just letting myself feel it. Yes. Yes. Um, What is default mode thinking? Okay, so we were talking about thinking and feeling as two different um, forms of embodied self-awareness. So, right on the thinking side, on the thinking side, there's two kinds of feelings. There's what's called task it, that occurs in the what's so-called task-positive neural network. This is when we're solving problems, when we're explaining, when we're judging, when we're trying to figure things out. Um, we have something we're focusing on. Default mode thinking is where our thoughts go when we're off task. So um, let's suppose you, you know, you have a full day and you're busy and you're taking care of your kids and you're going to work and you're all these tasks and your mind is constantly running through scenarios and solving problems and you know, what am I going to get at the grocery store? What am I going to make for dinner? And, okay. And then you decide your partner comes home and 
it's time and you can go out and take a little walk or take a run or something like that. And typically what happens in those moments when you don't have anything to do is the default mode thoughts start to come in. And those are thoughts that are no longer about doing anything because you're not doing anything except, you know, you're out there walking. Um, they're, they're kind of reviewing what happened during the day. They're, um, oh, gosh, I, I was so good in that meeting. Or, you know, I'm going to say such and such to such and such person next time I see them. Or I'm going to thank somebody. Or, gosh, I wasn't that good. Or, you know, it's just like we just run through everything that happens in that day or maybe in other days. And our mind is just kind of running on automatic. Um, default mode thoughts can also be very creative. Like if you're working on a problem that didn't find a solution, when you go off task, maybe the solution just comes to you in the default mode network. Um, the default mode network thinking can also be dysregulated. So that's when we get our worries and our ruminations. That's when these, you know, thoughts become um, negative toward ourselves. And we can't, we have the feeling that we can't stop them and we can't escape them, um, which are all symptoms of things like anxiety and depression. And a lot of people have that um, in the middle of the night. <clears throat> people who are yes. working through issues have those, um, <clears throat> exactly what you're explaining. In the middle of the night, this default mode thinking, which all of a sudden everything rises up, and they don't know what to do with it. Um, and it's often things of self-judgment and, um, well, self-judgment, I would say, is a lot of it. Because why did I do this? Why did I say this? Why did that person, you know, do this to me? Um, am I good enough? Well, you know, what's wrong with me? Those are all the kind of things that we yeah. have when we're not really thinking and we wake up and all of a sudden they're there, right? So that would be considered default right. mode thinking? That would be dysregulated default mode thinking. Dysregulated default but mode thinking. We, yeah, we wake up in the middle of the night and we're, um, we're running through good things that happened or we're running through ideas for a project we're working on. Um, that's really different. That's a very different kind of default mode network thinking because it's more, it's more supportive. It's more creative. It fits into the things that we're, that we're working on. Um, it will still keep us awake at night, but um, it won't be harmful in the same way that dysregulated worries and self-judgments can potentially be harmful to our, <clears throat> to our mental health and our physical health. You know, I find, because I, I do a lot of writing, and I find that when I, um, I have a block, a mental block or whatever, and I can't, a writing block, and I can't do anything, I get up. So I'm off task. This is what you're describing. And then all of uh -huh. a sudden, it floods, the information floods in. <clears throat> so when I'm yeah. sitting there and I'm trying to figure it out and I'm trying to, you know, write um Think about what I want to write, and then you know when I when I'm trying, it doesn't flow as easily as when I'm not trying. 
Yes. So that would be, um, yeah. That would be modulated. Modulated. Right. Oh, wow. We're getting such a great education today. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> um, thank you. So I want to uh, mention your book again, um, the one, the Restorative Embodiment and Resilience, a guide to disrupt habits, create inner peace, deepen relationships, and feel greater presence. So that's pretty much what we're talking about today. And you mentioned that you have another book. Um, I know you've written several books, but you mentioned another book that pertained to a topic we were talking about earlier. Um, do you, Which book would that be again? Well, the book you just mentioned just came out. I mean, it just came out okay. last month. Okay, and so it, that's the newest one. Okay. So, so I would refer people there because I think that um, it's more down to earth. <laughs> um, I'm kind of a scientist, academic at heart, and my previous book on a similar topic was called Body Sense. And I'd have to say, looking back on it now, that it it just is a little bit more academically written. Um, has harder language. It's a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, and it might be a good background for somebody who's into that kind of thing. But um, this more recent book has a lot more practical advice. It has exercises. It has examples. Um, and this thing about the three states of embodied self-awareness that we've been talking about, that's new. That's it arisen in my own creative default mode way over the last few years, and then I put that into this new book. Wow. It is such an amazingly accurate concept. So this is something, this is uh, has, has never really been identified the way that you've identified it before. This is your aha moment. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Well, it's awesome. It's it's amazing. Um, so, your tell us about um, what you're currently doing, and um, are you? So, you you do the Rosen, you practice the Rosen method, and uh, what are some of the things that you're currently doing? Um, well, I'm actually I'm not. Rosen method is a touch therapy. So um, with the pandemic and because I'm older, I'm 75 and more vulnerable, I've um, suspended my actual in-person Rosen Method bodywork practice okay. until um, until the pandemic starts to settle down and I feel makes safe sense. for doing it. Yeah, that makes so, sense. So um, what I've been doing is more online, what I call embodied self-awareness consulting. Um, but... I'm also, you know, part-time retired and part-time working. So I'm not doing a whole lot of that. You know, it's, I, do, I do it because I love it. I love connecting with people in these deep ways and helping people to come closer to their um, felt experience. I'm not at the present moment doing any writing projects because... I don't know. It takes me a long time between books, and this might be my last. Just yeah. but um, basically, I'm I'm trying to bring myself back to a state of calm and rest after all the excitement of getting the book out and um, talking to interesting people like you. 
and getting the word out about the book. So that's kind of where I'm at these days. Yes, that can be, that can really take all of our focus when we release a book and it's really all that we're about. But um, so uh, do you have a website if someone wanted to contact you about, you know, doing this, um, this work, this kind of work with you? Yes, I do. I have to say that at least right now, at the time that we're talking, I'm not taking any new clients because my practice is full. But the okay. website is, is is Alan Fogel Rosen Method, all one word. Okay. And Fogel is F-O-G-E-L, and Alan is A-L-A-N, Alan Fogel. Um, <clears throat> okay. Very good. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest. I knew this was going to be very, very interesting. And... Um, you know, I like topics that I can really dive into. And this one, I, can, I, I was able to do that and really relate it well to the work that I do and to uh, many of my listeners who listen because of the work that I do. So thank you for this, you know, other approach. Um, and I'm, a lot of what you said I'm going to actually be using with my clients. Well, thank you. Because yeah, I like great. it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I, again, that's, that's I terrific. Can feel your, I can feel your enthusiasm and the questions <laughs> were coming from that place of curiosity, and that's always makes it a lot more fun for me. So, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, it was a great interview, and um, and I hope you have a wonderful day, um, and best of luck with uh, and of success with your book. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Take take care. Bye-bye. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com. And be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.